You know, someone's going to jail for this. You know, right issues, Bill, that we may have involved ourselves with here. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, if you're in this church, you are asked to have a don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to copyright infringement. If you look in your notes there with me, join me in considering Mr. David Pollison's thought. David is a biblical counselor. We have gleaned such wonderful benefit from through the years. Concerning our subject, he says, why is idolatry so important in the Bible? Idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. So what? Is the problem of idolatry even relevant today, except on certain mission fields where worshipers still bow down to images? You know, when we come to this subject of personal idols, and we use that term, we talk about looking into our lives. What exactly are we looking for? Where do we look? What's the signs that idols have been here in this location of our lives? How do, how do we identify them? You know, when you go to the scriptures and you, and you deal with issues of idolatry that are in the scriptures... They, they have names and they have shapes and they, they are in certain locations of the world. They, there's shrines and there's rituals associated with them. Right? I, I threw a couple of them in there. There's probably well over 50 idols with names that are identified in Scripture. And so there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of them, but I will say this, and you'll kind of see this in some of the little expressions of each one of them. You know, the Babylonians had their set, and the Egyptians had their set, and the Canaanites had their set. But, you know, they, they all covered the same terrain, which I think is very helpful for us to understand something about idols. There's not an infinite number of idols, and that tells us a little bit about why they're even in our lives at all. So there's certain things that, that these folks were going after. So you can see them in some of the, the idols of the Bible. Baal. Baal was the farm god who gave increase to family and field, flocks, and herd. Asherah, or Ashtoreth, depending on the, the way it's spelled in Scripture, uh, was a Canaanite fertility goddess. Gad was the god of fortune. It was known as the greater luck in, in terms of stars, right? Remember the term lucky stars? I bet my lucky stars. Well, that's what Gad was. Gad was a lucky star. That, that was an idol in uh, the Arab world. Ra was an Egyptian sun god. Adad was a Mesopotamian storm god. He brought, he brought weather changes and rain. Marduk was a Babylonian god of war. So we have all these examples and many, 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 many more in Scripture. The Bible is very busy talking about idols. Well, what can we reach back into this world of prolific idolatry and pull into our day and say, okay, what... What can we learn from idolatry in the way in which it's presented in Scripture? Because we don't really pull Marduk, his image, his name, into today. Baal, you know, you'd have a hard time driving down Veterans Highway and finding anything that's got to do with Baal. Does that mean you would be driving down Veterans Highway and not run across any idols? The idols of today, they, they don't use these names. They don't have the same emblems and symbols. And they don't have the same rituals. There was a lot of ritual involved in idol worship. Today, idol worship is still in our midst, but we just engage it differently. We walk out how we make our offerings. 
to our idols differently, how we engage idol worship differently. Let me, let me take you to a passage here. Look in 2 Kings chapter 17. And, you know, the issue of idolatry, you could just fling the Bible open and stick your finger on a page, and you probably, within a few sentences, would find something going on with idolatry in, in this setting. But what I want to see here is an interesting, I want to transpose some of these issues here from the idolatry of the past to the idolatry of today. And so what we have in this passage is, is Israel, God's nation, God's people have been corrupted by idolatry. They've begun to pursue the practice of worshiping idols. And we'll see in a little bit as to why it was that they did that. And God has decided, I'm going to export all of you. I'm going to kick you all out of the land. This land that I gave you was intended to be a place where you would enjoy the benefits and blessings I would bring into your life. And we would walk in fellowship and, and you would worship the one true God. Well, they got into the land, they got corrupted, and they began to, to practice and pursue the very same things that all the neighbors in the land were doing. They learned from the idolatrous worshipers in their day that lived next door to them, lived around them, and they incorporated these things into their own lives. And if you look down, I'm going to try not to read this whole passage here. In verse 7, it says, This occurred, this, this exporting of God's people from the land, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Now, idolatry is an issue of sin. It, it is, and we will look at that more carefully. It's an issue of sin in our lives. So when we have something that's displaced God, it, it's not an inconvenience. It's, it's not just a matter of, you know, I, I know that probably shouldn't describe me, but, you know, it does. And that's kind of true of everybody. It's sin Against God. As a matter of fact, there isn't a more significant sin against God than idolatry. Let's skip down to verse 14. God says, But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. And used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Let me just analyze their idolatry for a moment. This is a people who actually did burn their sons and their daughters on altars in sacrifice to false gods. If you read further in here, you find a whole other set of people who did exactly the same thing. The gods that are being referred to here, they weren't the king of the children destroyers. There were other gods. Molech and Chemosh are much more famous for a people who would take their children and burn them to death. 
Now, now, can you go with me into the insanity of this moment? Something has occurred that has taken a people who instinctively and naturally in their own lives love their own children, but are about to take their own children and burn them to death. And does this, does this prove something about the human heart? We're capable of some really, really wicked stuff. But before we just get enamored with how wicked this is, can we look into the mechanics of what the heck was going on there? Well, it's really not all that complicated. It's tragic, but it's not that complicated. These people actually wanted something more than they wanted their own children. Can you go with me there? It really is that simple. Because if I want my children more than I want whatever Baal can bring to me, whatever Molech can bring to me, if I want my children more than I want them, I'm not burning anybody. I only burn my children if I think I can obtain something that's so much more valuable than they are. That's the wickedness of the human heart. They weren't forced to burn their children. They wanted to burn their children. And they wanted to burn their children because they wanted something else more than they wanted their children. And let me carefully move us from that moment into our modern setting. Today, I don't think anybody can come up with an example of anyone they know burning their children. But yet, we live in a day and an age where children are being sacrificed. Still a statistical accuracy. It's an estimate, but it's it's fairly good accuracy. But still today, 1.5 million babies will be aborted again this year in this country alone. Now, let me say this because I don't want to be insensitive here. Life travels down roads that none of us were prepared to walk on. None of us were. And there's probably some folks here who went down a path they weren't prepared for. They didn't know what it was going to be like. They found themselves in a moment making decisions that they have tried to get healed from and move on from. And there has been a huge amount of difficulty. Uh, The issue of abortion for an individual is a very, very complicated issue. Now, I would do a disservice to you, though, to ignore the truth of Scripture in the face even of heartache and difficulty. See, one of the things that sometimes we live in a society that puts band-aids on issues that the Bible gives us better information about. You can't put a band-aid on abortion. But can we look at the mechanics of this for a moment? Someone walks down, a woman walks down a path where she enters a relationship with someone else and she becomes pregnant and has to make a decision about that child's life. Now, things are informing that person in that moment. But what is usually the case, there would be rare exceptions, is this child is going to disrupt my life. I don't know if I can care for this child Listen, everybody who's, and any children can say that, by the way. 
but I don't know if I can care for this child and have the life that I want. I want a particular life. And this child is coming at a bad time. The situation is not good. I'm not married or it's just, it's just not a good thing for me to be bringing a child into the world. Listen, there's no fire here. But there is someone saying, do I want this or do I want that? Which do I want more? Because in my mind, I was thinking I'm going down this path. I'm going to have this kind of life. I'm going to enjoy these kinds of things. I'm going to have this kind of relationships in my life. I'm going to have this kind of a career. And and do I want this or do I want that? See, it is very much a matter of what do I want? I don't know if I want this child. And so this child is being sacrificed. It's not just abortion. One out of every three children born in this country are born to unwed mothers. Statistically, into some very dire situations. The issues of poverty and family dysfunction that these children are coming into force them into a pattern of living that will be destructive for them for years to come in their life. They will fight their way out, not knowing and not understanding why it is that there are issues in them that they struggle with, that turn into crime. Some of us don't kind of take notice of that until it visits our door. But there are people walking through grave dysfunction in their world. Why? Because someone, before that child was conceived, someone wanted something. Quite often it was physical pleasure. Some guy wanted physical pleasure. But you remember, a child can come from this. Matter of fact, maybe this is even your first child that will come from this. Oh, I know that's true. But that doesn't stop me. Because I want something. See, I, I want the pleasure of sex. So... If that means a child comes into a terrible situation and I'm never going to be the dad and that child lives a life under the weight of dysfunction for years and years and years and years, I'm willing to offer up that child for that. See, because I want something. The woman who enters into that relationship who either also wants physical pleasure or wants some kind of emotional connection or wants to be accepted and cared for by... See, they want something... More than they want something else. And children are going to come into that arena and they're going to be sacrificed before they're even born. And then we've developed this pattern of living in America where it's getting way, way too common for husbands and wives who are married to want something besides investment in their children. Very busy lives. Workaholic attitudes. Why? Because we want So much. Children being neglected and neglected and neglected and neglected. Even in a home where there's a husband and a wife present. Now there's no molech and there's no fire involved. But children are being sacrificed. Because we want something else. See, we may not be able to drive down Veterans Highway and see the shrine of Gad... God of fortune. But come on. There's a bunch of us driving down Veterans Highway chasing fame and fortune. Right? So we just don't call it Gad. We adjust our lives. 
We go after certain things. We have a different set of rituals. We don't go visit the shrine of Gad, bring our offering, whatever it was that we believe Gad requires. But to pursue fortune in this world, we do offer up certain things in our lives. We take the precious commodity of our time and we spend it a certain way. Why? Because we want something. We take our money and we spend it a certain way. We take our attention and our energy and our education and we spend it a certain way at the altar of something that doesn't look like a tiki image. It's a way of life. We're going to find out in just a moment. The tiki image is the least of things that any of these folks are really concerned about. Idolatry is an issue that is still present today, still relevant today. And it's an issue that's at the top of God's concern. Right? Turn back to Exodus now with me. Open with this verse last week. Whether we're talking about God forming the nation of Israel here in Exodus chapter 20, or we're talking about the close of the New Testament canon, the issue of idolatry is all on the pages of Scripture. This issue doesn't disappear And it doesn't lessen in importance. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This, if you want to study something about how to define life, this is where God starts. God starts with who he is. Everything else in this universe takes its place after that statement. The second anything else becomes more important, we violated the very place that God starts. God starts with himself. He does not start with us. He does not start with our existence. He does not start with what we think is good for us. He doesn't start with fair. God starts with himself. Since God is perfect, that must be the right place to start. Any other starting point for us is poorly informed. So this is where God starts. This is who I am. And then he says in verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. This is the number one issue on your existence. I'm God and you shall have no other gods in your life before me. Nothing shall displace me. I shall remain uniquely in a category in your existence in a way that nothing else can ever compete with. That's the command of God. That's where God starts. God starts with worship because we are created to be worshipers. That's what, that's what God did when he made us. God created worshipers to relate to him. That was the proper response to God. It's the most enjoyable thing you and I will ever experience in our lives. See, this is where deceptiveness is just so operable in us. But keep thinking there's something out there that's more fun than worshiping God. And it begins to compete with us. God made us to be worshipers who would live to adore him to gaze upon him, to take him in drinking men and enjoy him forever. Everything in our lives begins and is defined by worship. Everything. Whatever we worship is what's defining who we are. And God starts in this first command with that which sets the tone for everything else in our life. If you get this right, you get everything else right. If you get this wrong, you get everything else wrong. That's why this is the first great commandment. Look at this thought from Martin Luther. It says, now this is the work of the first commandment, which commands, thou shalt have no other gods. Which means, since I alone am God, thou shalt place all thy confidence, trust, and faith on me alone. 
and no one else. For that is not to have a God. This faith, faithfulness, confidence, deep in the heart is the true fulfilling of the first commandment. Without this, there is no other work that is able to satisfy this commandment. And as this commandment is the very first, highest, and best, from which all the others proceed, in which they exist, and by which they are directed and measured, so also its work, that is, the faith or confidence in God's favor at all times, is the very first, highest, and best from which all others must proceed, exist, remain, be directed, and measured. Listen, I put a little thought there in your outline there to give us a mental picture of this. Commandment number one sits as a toggle switch. Either set on God or on an idol. All the other commands, all the other practices of our lives take their cue from the toggle setting. Right, so, available to us, and I don't want to limit this to some grand scheme, one toggle switch over, governing over our lives, because quite honestly, I find that there are, there's a panel of toggle switches. <laughs> there's one main one, and, and that's the one that's most easily that we think it's set correctly. There's a bunch of ones under it, and how we live our lives moment by moment, you know, finances and people, and, and, and in that moment, there's toggle switches. And when they are set on God, all the other commands are affected by that setting. If they're set on something else, all the other commands are affected by that setting. Right? If I'm after some form of personal advancement, that I have stopped realizing that I exist for him and for his glory and radiance, and somehow I have begun to exist for my own, so I have this, this self-advancement thing operating within me, well, you know, if I flip the toggle switch this way, it's very easy for me to jump down the list, right? We get through the commands and you get to things like, uh, thou shalt not murder, shall not steal, shall not commit adultery, shall not bear false witness. Oh, bear false witness, you shall not lie. Well, you know, but for my career to advance and for me to go to this position and gain all the respect... And the sense of success that accompanies that, I'm going to have to work some deals. I'm going to have to cut some edges off. I'm going to have to shade the truth. I'm going to have to lie. I mean, come on, Keith. It's just, I mean, welcome. Welcome to the corporate America, dude. You're just so out of touch. That's all about toggle setting. I'm so into my advancement that I'm willing to break one of the commands. Relate marital relationships. Right? If my toggle setting is on God, He is my God, I live for His glory, and the temptation for adultery comes, I'm not going down that road. Because that doesn't glorify God. Oh, it may give me a momentary pleasure, but it doesn't glorify God. And since this, I, I don't exist for momentary pleasures, I exist for the glory of God, my toggle switches toward God, I'm not going to sin against my wife. But let the switch get changed. And let it be that I am about personal pleasure. And the day of temptation comes. And see, this toggle switch is in the wrong spot. And now, guess what? You commit adultery. No one commits adultery without breaking the first commandment. No one commits murder without breaking the first commandment. 
See, it's not like you can say, oh, well, you know, I look at my board and my switch is set on God and you've got adultery going on and anger and murder and malice in your heart. Oh, no, 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 no. You flip that first switch before you ever got to flipping the other ones. You don't violate any of the other commands because they rise and fall on the first commandment. That's why Jesus could sum up so much of the commandments into you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you get the first one right, you will get the second one right. Always. The only time we get the second one wrong, and all the other ones wrong in Scripture, is when we misplace the first one. So clearly God makes a big deal. He starts with it. When he brings his people together, the law is devoted to spelling out issues of idolatry that are going to come into your life when you move into the land. The prophets... The prophets basically are following up on the fact that they have broken the first commandment. Why do the prophets ever show up? It's because they've broken the first commandment and God has sent the prophet in his mercy to restore them, bring conviction into the land. So all the Bible, the law and the prophets are all devoted to this issue of idolatry in a huge way. Well, we get into the New Testament and we think, well, maybe it's going to soften up a little bit. It's the New Testament. You know, it's love, love, grace, grace. And we get all the way to one of the last words at the end of the canon of the New Testament. You have the Apostle John writing 1 John, the last sentence in 1 John chapter 5. Now, the only thing left to be written in Scripture that you and I are enjoying today is a little bitty letter called 2 John, a little bitty letter called 3 John, and Revelation. So one of the last words of the Bible is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Little children. Keep yourselves from idols. Molech is no longer on the scene. Baal is no longer on the scene. Different set of idols are on the scene. And New Testament idols, which feel a little bit different. Look at this thought from David Pallison. It says, in a 105-verse treaty on living in vital fellowship with Jesus, the Son of God, how on earth does that unexpected command merit being the final word? John's last line properly leaves us with the most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart. This is a good covenant group question. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? That's an idle question. When we answer that question, we're we're describing the function of idolatry in our lives. It's not so critical that we come to this topic and be all boned up on Zeus and Apollo and Molech. and Let's let's study idolatry. That's not going to help you a whole lot. Because the idols you're looking for, they don't look like that. They don't have names like that. And they don't function in you like that. So today I really want to clarify the function and feel of idolatry. Because what we're doing in this series goes nowhere if none of us discover any of the idolatry that's in us. If we just discover a topic, a topic that maybe existed really well for people who lived a long time ago, or maybe some, you know, there's a few people out there that I can think of that fall into that category. If I don't get into this topic and realize how it already is in me, I'm going to waste this study. It's a waste. So idolatry is in us. But it is in us like a stealth fighter. It's not volunteering to be discovered. And it hides very well until you know what you're looking for. 
So let's see if we can discover what we're looking for. First thought I'm putting your outline there. Idolatry is not so much about the external images and props as it is about what the heart is craving when it makes use of those props. Now we're going to see that in a moment. Molech and Baal, idolatry was not so much about them as it was what was in the heart of the people who made use of Baal. They wanted something. The heart is the critical issue here. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 14. We looked at this passage a little bit last week. The elders of Israel. Ezekiel is a prophet to the exiled, those who have been kicked out of the land because of idolatry. They've already been booted out. Right? So now they've been taken captive by the Babylonians. So they've been exported. They no longer live in the land of God's promise and benefit. God removed them because of idolatry. And the prophet Ezekiel lives amongst them. And people are coming to him to seek out advice and seek things from God. One day, Ezekiel 14, verse 1, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their eyes. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? And the issue I want us to see is something has happened here to where these idols have found their way into the hearts of these men. Now, what, what, what is Ezekiel telling us about here? Is he talking about some kind of a strange tiki transplant? You know, I mean, is there grafted into the physical heart of these individuals is some kind of tattoo of an idol? You know, they implanted something in them. There's a little tiki face chunked into their heart some mysterious way. We all know that's not what this is about, is it? It's, a, it's about the heart, that centerpiece of our lives, that thing that's full of desires and emotions and motivation and passions for living. Idols have found their way into that in these men's lives. Jameson Fawcett commentary says... The heart is first corrupted, and then the outward manifestation of idol worship follows. If I'm trying to find idolatry in my life, the heart has been corrupted before the outside begins to poke up, before you get to see any of the fruit of idolatry that's in me, the heart has already been corrupted, the behavior is the manifestation of something hidden. You observe the behavior. I observe the behavior. But the idol stays hidden on the inside. There's a Hebrew word there used. It means to allow anything to come into the mind, to permit it to rise up in the heart, to be mentally busy therewith. Right? I mean, I, I, I want this today to be helpful in... Your personal search for turning on the flashlight and finding out where, where are these creepy little idols hiding in my life. Well, these are helpful, helpful clues to be mentally busy therewith. 
Carlin Delish go on to say, to set before one's face, that phrase in this passage, is also to be understood in a spiritual sense as relating to a thing which a man will not put out of his mind. Want to find issues of idolatry in your life? What is it that you can't get out of your mind? What is it that your mind always has within short reach? It's close by. What series of thoughts go on in your head? Right, This is a good covenant group question. What, what's being described in you right now when you hear something that you can't get out of your head? Right, you know that argument you keep rehearsing in your mind to have with that person the next time you talk about this issue? Your husband, your wife, your kids, whoever. And you play it back over and over and you rewind. I should have said that. Well, I will say this next time. Well, maybe not that because that gives away this. And, um, and, and you just can't get it out of your mind. And of course, and then somebody comes into your office and, and, and you're all irritated with them. Why? Because, because you're trying to concentrate, for goodness sake. <laughs> and here comes your kids got some need, you know, change the diaper. Hey, hey, get out of here. You know, I'm, I'm working on a court case right now. You know, it's because you kids can't get it out of your mind. Now, how many of us walk around like that? 30, 40 years, not realizing that issue is rooted in some idolatrous desire of the heart that you can be so preoccupied so often over that. Now, you've got to go where your heart's going to take you in this issue. Maybe it's maybe it's your appearance. Maybe you never drift far from a mirror without a good second and third look. You know, the brakes come on when you go by it's like, Yeah. Listen, if that kind of stuff is what's in you, it's attached to something else. It's about an idol in your life. It's not Molech. It's not Baal, right? If that's what you're looking for, you're not going to find you walk away going, man, I'm glad we're doing this study, man. I don't have any idols going on in my life. Oh, no, you do. They just don't advertise the way you're thinking that they do. They're deep in the hearts. David Powelson says, the Bible internalizes the problem. Idols of the heart are graphically portrayed in Ezekiel 14. The worship, listen, the worship of tangible idols is ominously an expression of a prior heart defection from Yahweh, your God. Listen, when you get to the point where you're actually acting on your idols' impulses, it's because before you got to that point, you flipped the toggle switch. And you defected from God. And God is no longer God. Something else is God now. And you are acting on its impulses. Idols of the heart is only one of many metaphors which move the locus of God's concerns into the human heart. Establishing an unbreakable bond between specifics of heart and specifics of behavior. If idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for the same drift, right? Turn to James chapter 1. Let's watch this from Scripture. James chapter 1. Verse 13. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Listen, evil never appeals to God. Some lustful thought, some daydream about having all that money. You know, God never goes there. It's not like God goes, ooh, yeah, I'd even be tempted by that. (laughs) Yeah. God, he's not tempted by it. It just never becomes an appealing thing for him. But yet it is appealing to us. So the source of our problem isn't with God. And no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can be tempted, cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Right? We can substitute the word idol right there. We're enticed and lured when we're tempted by our own idol. Now, now this, is a, this is helpful for us, and it's humbling as well. Why is it that the things that tempt you don't necessarily tempt me? Because you serve a different idol than the one I serve, or the ones I serve. The things that come to me and I stumble over, you may not even be able to relate to. You might look at that and go, what kind of a knucklehead is he? You did what? Why? And I might look at yours and do exactly the same. But each person is enticed and lured by different things. There are some things that just don't get my attention. Not interested. So I can look really cool and spiritual on those categories. Because for you, they're alive and and they're 7 a.m. and they're all day long. And you're assuming that everybody's just like you. So you're figuring, you know, I just want to know how it is that Keith don't have an issue like this, man. I'd love to say, well, just because I'm a spiritual giant. Uh, But thanks for asking. I hope you can attain to that as well. That may never have been an issue for me ever in my life. I could be a spiritual midget in that category. It's just that there ain't nothing that interests me there. Now, you want to talk about this one over here? Because i got issues over here. And for me, that's 7 a.m. and all day long. I'm battling with that. Each person is tempted and led away when he's enticed by his own idol, his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right? Now, most of us show up too late in the movie. Most of us are showing up right about the time that sin is turning into death. Finally, something's got our attention. Now, do you understand that by the time we get to the place where decay and death is occurring, the idol has been at work for years in that category, stirring up desires and longings and finally getting us to act on a few of them. And then the action eventually brings forth death. Right? By God's grace, this is a window that opens for us, a door that we can run through. God takes us from the doorway of death and he brings us way back here. And he says, that began right here. Long before it was ever observable to anyone, it was going on in your heart. Your toggle switch had been flipped and you wanted something. And the moment you did, you became vulnerable to go down that road at all costs. It just took you a while for the price to get high enough. It took little steps in it at first, a few more little steps, not a lot of risk. But the more you walk in it, the more risk you're willing to take because, see, you want that. I want it. The next thing you know, it's controlling and you can't stop it. Look over in James chapter 4. 
Verse 1. What causes, it's a good word there, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at work within you? You desire, right? that's what passion is. Passion is strong desire. Idols are strong desire. So we're talking idolatry right here. We're talking a personal idol in our lives that we want so much. Your desire, you desire it and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, which means, again, strong desire, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own pleasures. All of a sudden, everything in your life is about having this thing. You want this. And now you have an idol in your life and you've just produced a cause and effect relationship. There's effects in our lives that come about out of a cause. The cause is the idol. The effects are the behaviors that get enumerated here. Let me put up here a little architecture. This is my idol architecture here. Commonly in our lives, this is where some of us go, you know, I'm, I'm just having a hard time finding, you know, the issue of idolatry in my life. All right, here's how you get closer to it. Find places where you quarrel. Find your moments of conflict. Analyze your anger. Look in places where you've slandered someone else. Slander is a form of murder. It's where you murder someone's reputation. It's where you tear someone down. You don't have the guts to shoot them, but you don't mind shooting them with some words and causing everybody else around them to want to move away from them. What on earth is going on there? That attitude lives right next door to jealousy. Find jealousy in your life. When you find these things, you're finding the exteriors. You're you're finding the effects of idolatry. You haven't found the idol yet. You've only found the behaviors that are manifested when the idol is at work in your heart. Now, this is a huge downfall of Christianity. And part of it, because I don't think churches are led well. Part of it, because we're all too busy to... Kind of do anything that I'm talking about, right? I mean, can, can you just give me a pill? Can you just give me something quick? Is there like a little pamphlet I can read and be done with this issue in my life? No. One of the words we'll get to in our study of idolatry is the word stubborn. We already read it once today. Idols are stubborn. So they don't yield to little pills and little pamphlets. And what we end up doing is sometimes, even as Christian leaders, we design teachings around conflict. And so next thing you know, we're trying to teach people how to communicate. You know, okay, husbands and wives, we're going we're to have a, a special session on communication. And, okay, well, when, when you say this, you need to you know, give your wife a chance to speak, and then she needs to be able to say her part. And, then, and, and you teach techniques on how to manage conflict. Well, I, I haven't even touched the idol. All I've done now is given coaching techniques on how to behave when the, when the idol pulls my string. That's not wrong to do that, by the way. But what would be better would be to take some scissors to the string. 
it'd be better to cut the idol off that's causing these things deep in my life to function. And this, this is all over our lives, husbands and wives. And husbands and wives, can you find your conflict? Can you find your moments of anger in your marriage? Now, we're tempted to say, yeah, oh, man, my husband has a real anger problem. He does because he has an idol problem. You don't want to just teach him how to manage his anger. You want to find out why is he so angry? What's going on deep down inside that you are so angry? Well, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You want something and you can't get it. And it just so happens that the number one reason on the list I can't get it is because of you. I'm married to the number one hindrance in the universe. (laughs) And since you are in the way of something that I want so bad. Really angry. Bitter. You're going to pay. Right? It's not just anger management, is it? It's a matter of what on earth do you want so bad? Teenagers and parents. Got issues? I didn't, I didn't fill in all this. So I'm going to build this model. This was a 1230 last night model. So this, this will be developed further. But there are other things that are on the edges of our lives that we're coming in contact with. Right? If you're, if you're a parent and a teenager, you know, your issue may or may not be on that list. It could be. There could be some real resentful anger moments in a relationship between parent and teens. Right? Teenagers, think for a moment. What are you, what are you so angry about? But when you take it all apart, you're going to find out you want something really bad. And the number one hindrance in your life right now for you to get it is your parents. And you are very angry about that. Well, I don't necessarily need to do a class on respecting your parents, although that would be good. But you've got an idol problem. You want something, and if you don't manage that biblically, you will become murderous in how you go after it. And you'll bulldoze whoever, whoever gets in your way. Right now, this is true, roommates and friends. I mean, you guys have moved from roommate to roommate to roommate. I mean, you guys, you look back in your friendships, and you have these seasons of friends over here, and then they're gone, and seasons of friends over here, and then they're gone, and seasons of friends over here, and then they're gone. Hey, what's, what's going on there? Well, you know, there was, some, there was some conflict and, you know, there was some slander that took place and there was some gossip that broke out over here. You know, so we just moved on to here, moved on to here, moved on to here. Listen, you and your friends are after something. You want something. That's how idols function in our lives. And once you start wanting that, I'm just a step away from breaking the other commands. I'll steal, I'll murder, I'll be angry at you, I'll slander you, I'll talk about you, I'll gossip about you. Yeah, I loved you a moment ago, but you no longer serve my idol, and man, I will take you out. I'll lie, I'll exaggerate. My goodness, 
if we actually moved exaggeration into the category of lying, do you know what kind of an altar call we could have this morning? (laughs) We are spin masters. You want to find an idol in your life? Find the places where you spin stuff. In that moment where you just you put an extra thousand dollars on how much that thing cost. Yeah. What is that all about? The car costs what? What, what were you doing just now? Why did you lie? Why did you say that? Because there's an idol in me that wants to impress you. I want you to be impressed with me. I work 24-7 at getting worship to come this way. And that's an opportunity. I made a really cool decision about this. Watch. Let me, let me explain it to you. We spin it just a little bit. I mean, the facts are basically right, but boy, we glossed it to where it's extremely right now. You know, anybody could have done that, but when I did it, it's up here now. See, because I'm not like everybody else. You understand? I am so much better, smarter, savvy. You know, you'll see that. And so we just explain things in such a way it just puts us in this glorious position. What are we doing? Oh, it's just a little stretch. Come on, Keith. Hey, you you can stand before God and see how God does with little stretches. But the real issue is, why do you do that? Isn't it a terrible thing to live your whole life getting your leash yanked by some idol who says, time for you to perform? Thanks thing you know, you're under the weight of doing something to get your idol to eat. And you're going through your ritual and you're sacrificing your life and your time and your reputation and your money and your being involved with people right, so that your idol can feel comfortable. This is how idolatry functions in us. Now, the reality is we may be out of touch with this. Here's some good covenant group questions. How to find idolatry. First, look for strong desires. Don't look for weak ones. Don't look for how much you have a passion for broccoli. (laughs) Look for strong desires, longings and cravings of the heart that tend to become obsessive and overflow their levees. Nothing wrong with having desires. Nothing is wrong with having desires. It's when they become a roaring river that overflows their levees and spills out into the countryside and starts wiping stuff out. Now my desires are wrong. They're out of control. Look for conflict. When I want something too much, I invariably will trample you to get what I want. I become reckless and lose the motivation of sacrificial care and love for others. No longer about what's best for you in this moment. I'm about what's best for me and you're my way. Look for strong emotion. Where do you find anger? Where do you find irritation? Irritation is a good one because most of us don't really admit to anger. But irritation is that thing that that goes on right before we qualify for anger. It's like you just, oh, that person just, oh. Yeah, I ran into so-and-so today. Mm. You know, (laughs) one of the kids did. Mm. You know, it's like we haven't actually murdered them yet. But why are you so irritated? Because I want something, okay? (laughs) You really need to know. Fear. Where is there fear in your life? Fear is about idolatry. This is a little different. Anger is about getting something idolatrous. Fear is usually about losing something idolatrous. How many of you know the fearful people are nicer? (laughs) All of us who have anger issues, just they're difficult to be around, aggressive, run you over, say the wrong thing, have to apologize a thousand times. 
the people with fear idols, they're much nicer. They're just afraid of losing something. Isn't that terrible? You know, they're not going to say something and over and over. They're just afraid of losing something. That's an idol. God doesn't want you living with fear, controlling your life. All right, let me move us to a close here. There's a list there for you to consider of things in your life that you may be looking for. Remember, Baal, Asherah, all these guys, none of them were truly after Baal. They were after what Baal could offer them. None of them were going home saying, honey, I was just in so-and-so's tent, and they had this cute little golden image on their mantelpiece called Baal. Can we have one? (laughs) That's not what they wanted. Baal was a fertility god. Baal specialized in reproduction. Crops reproducing, herds reproducing, people reproducing. Sons and daughters, sons in particular. But what am I after? I want a lot of sons. I want a lot of sons because I need a lot of help on this farm. I want success. I want the respect of people around me. I want protection in case there's an enemy who would come. My boys will help protect me. I want my flocks to flourish because I want money. Money gives me power. Money gives me luxury. I feel secure. I know where my next meal's coming from. It's right out there in the herd that's been doing so well. Crops being abundant. See, I'm good for Yahweh to be my God, but you know what? I've noticed those people who serve Baal over there, look at their crops. Look how good their crops are doing. Do you understand why Israel will... Bail on God in order to go to Baal? Because that looks like it's working. Look at their life. It's working. Their crops are doing better than mine. Well, in that moment, you just discovered why you wanted God. You really didn't want God. You wanted something else. And that was your idol. And you'll use God to get it or you use Baal to get it. You use whatever you want to get it. It's not so much Baal you're after. You're after what Baal can provide for you. Which leads us to, to discerning some of these issues. Some of the things on the surface of our lives are really not our idols. Money, for most people, is not their idol. It's what their idol uses to bring something into their life. Right? I'm going to close with this quote from Tim Keller's book. This quote, this section of the book, is worth the price of the book. Because if we don't understand some of these issues, we pay the price for them. Listen to what he says. There are deep idols within the heart, beneath the more concrete and visible surface idols that we serve. Sin in our hearts affects our basic motivational drive, so they become idolatrous, deep idols. Some people are strongly motivated, and he's going to give some categories of deep idols, by a desire, here's one, for influence and power. Some people just... Their sun rises and falls on how much influence do I have, how much power do I have. While others are more excited by approval and appreciation, a craving to be appreciated and approved of. Some want emotional and physical comfort more than anything else. While still others want security, the control of their environment. When they go right and know it's going to go right and they're at peace about that. People with the deep idol of power do not mind being unpopular in order to gain influence. That's why, you know, if you're a power monger, you can't understand why that person is so stinking insecure. <laughs> you, yeah, that, that's not how you're wired. You just go after stuff. And this person is so concerned about what people think of them. You don't care about what people think. 
You want power over them. You're not trying to win their approval. You're trying to take them over. People are most motivated approval. People who are most motivated by approval are the opposite. They will gladly lose their power and control as long as everyone thinks well of them. Each deep idol, power, approval, comfort, or control, generates a different set of fears and a different set of hopes. Right? The stuff on the outside changes based on what's on the inside. Surface idols are things such as money, our spouse, or children, through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. We are often superficial in the analysis of our deep structures. For example, money can be a surface idol that seems to satisfy more foundational impulses. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life. Such people usually don't spend much money and live very modestly. They keep it all safely invested so they can feel completely secure in the world. Others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful and attractive. These people do spend their money because it gives them so much power over others. Now, listen, I know this is kind of, here, here's a tidal wave of thoughts. This is why what Jeff said is so important. Read the book and go back and read the book again and go find the sections that you need to read several times. Because here's what's so wonderfully freeing. Too many of us are living dealing with money issues and conflict issues and the way we speak to others and I'm trying to manage my anger and never, never addressing the reality that all that behavior is flowing out of a heart of idolatry. I want something. That's why I'm so afraid. That's why I'm so angry. And for us to walk in freedom, you have to get free of idols. Idols was the number one concern for God. Not behavior patterns. You shall have no other gods before me. Not, you don't better don't commit adultery and don't murder and don't steal and down here at the bottom is and make sure you treat me right. God starts where we must start. With the idols of our own hearts. Let's stand up together. I want to send us away with not just a sense of how to analyze ourselves, although I think that's very important. Very, very important. But the hope that we have in this process. You get some time this week. Go back, look at James chapter 4. Here's what's going on in those passions. James says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you see where God puts the issue here? You're having quarrels and fights among yourselves. And by the time James gets to the solution of it, he says, the problem that you're having is your adultery on God. Oh, no, no, God, I, I love you. The switch is thrown towards you. No, your quarrels and fights is because there's an idol in you that you want more than anything else, including me. You have made friends with something in this world and you want it more than you want me. You are committing adultery on me. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is about us and God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You see what's happened here? 
the place for God in our hearts has been lost. And that became clear because of the conflicts and quarrels. But here's good news. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You're having quarrels, conflicts, murderous towards each other. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sometimes you want God. Sometimes you want that other God. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Here's how I want us to close. I want us just to posture ourselves to pursue that passage. Humble before God. I don't want to argue with God. I don't want to resist God. I don't want my pride to convince me that I don't really have some of these issues. I want these issues to expose the fact that that my heart is adulterous toward God. But yet, in the very same passage where I discover that, I don't run from God. Do you you hear this? This is so important because the tendency of the uninformed theologian is to feel awkward about our relationship with God and move away from Him. Welcome to being Adam Jr. And when Adam does that, what does God do? He draws near to Adam. In this passage, where hearts are adulterous toward God, we've committed adultery on God. God stands in the same passage and says, Come here. Draw near to me. Do not back away from me right now. Humble yourself. Admit you've done something here and draw near to me. And I will draw near to you. That's the posture. Don't want anybody saying, oh, I hate this series already. <laughs> I just want to run from it. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, do, do not run. Draw near. God's got something for you. Draw near. Let's pray together. Lord, this, this passage in James, Lord, how wonderfully informing. Because it's real with us. Lord, I'm in that passage. I see my name in that passage. But God, more importantly, you are in that passage. And Lord, it still amazes us that, that you could be informing us today that we are adulterous in our relationship with you. And in the very next breath... You are the prodigal God reaching out to us, running down the driveway, welcoming us, pleading with us to draw near. Lord, we survey our lives and we're almost afraid to go into this category because we're going to find out, oh Lord, my idols have made such a mess of my life. There's divorce in my background. There's broken relationships in my background. There's financial ruin in my background. God, I, I too begin to see it's because I wanted something. I wanted something and I was willing to offer things in the fire to a God that did nothing but harm me. 
morning. Receive grace from God. He knows your past. He knows where the idol lifestyle has brought you. And he says, humble yourself and come near to me. Lord, I pray for that for every one of us. But I pray that this morning this word would find itself disturbingly into our lives. But yet, one hand holding fast to this truth, you draw us near. God, we do. We humble ourselves before you this morning. God, we humble ourselves that we might sit with a book of a gifted teacher that you have given to the body of Christ. We might have our eyes opened to see the condition of our life. God, you expose our lives that you might heal our lives. God, you reveal these things in our lives that we might go free in our lives. God, I pray for days ahead to be great days of freedom erupting from heart after heart after heart in this house, God, because we've seen clearly, why do I do the things I do? we can finally, finally throw the switch from seeking the benefit of that idol to seeking you and you alone. God, take us there. Give us grace to go there. And raise us up, Lord, from our humbled position to be exalted into your purposes once again. In Jesus' name. Amen.